Here's my, uh, here's my main idea. And I got lots of main ideas today, so forgive me if it feels like there's lots of main ideas. But here we go. God's people are distinct, but not distant from the world. Having heard the historical and political context now, we can understand that when God speaks to Isaiah here in chapter 8, what God is doing is he's preserving a people for himself in the midst of this political upheaval and judgment upon his people. That God is doing the work of preserving a faithful few who will honor him, not just with their lips, but also with their lives. And in doing so, will serve as a testimony to the gracious preservation that God's mercy has for his people. This is a, another longitudinal theme. That is a theme that runs from the beginning of the scripture all the way to the end. From Genesis to Revelation, God promises to preserve for himself a people despite the midst of difficult or chaotic or dangerous circumstances. And that's what he's doing with Isaiah and Isaiah's disciples here. In chapter 8, he's giving them a word of encouragement and judgment. The word of encouragement is for those who are faithful. The word of judgment is for those who have rejected the revelation of God. So let's begin with Isaiah 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... Isaiah receives from the Lord the word once again. This will be something that kind of recapitulates itself through the, the book of Isaiah, where God speaks to Isaiah different messages, different contexts, and in different ways. And what's interesting is the way that Isaiah describes the way God delivers or speaks the message to him this time. It is with his strong hand upon me. He's using a, a body language imagery, if you will. It's almost a, a face-to-face moment with God. If you've had one of those serious conversations as a parent with a child where you just kind of lay your hand upon their shoulder and you want them to, to feel the weight of your authority and, and know the, the, the weight of your presence with them as you speak to them. I remember my dad's hand on my shoulder growing up when he told me, son, if something is worth doing right, or excuse me, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right the first time. Now go restack that woodpile. I remember looking at my son with my hand on his shoulder, telling him, son, you're going to be a big brother now. And that carries an entirely different set of expectations upon your behavior. Now it's a big thing. I remember pastoral encouragements in my life. When my first pastor put his hand on my shoulder and said, yes, you can date my daughter, but be careful. (laughs) Isaiah wants us to know that in this moment when he receives the word from the Lord, that this is a serious word. God wants Isaiah to pay attention to what he's about to receive. It's also a significant word. God wants Isaiah to obey his direction, and so he places his hand upon his prophet heavily. This is also a simple word. God wants Isaiah to trust him, what he's about to receive. And what does Isaiah receive? This is the second half. That he warned him, second half of verse 11, that he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. What does Isaiah receive from the Lord? That the first direction is that he and his disciples would turn aside from the path that the people of Judah are following, that they must not succumb to the social, religious, and political pressure to conform to the beliefs and behavior patterns of the world around them. 
The call for Isaiah and his disciples is the same call we as believers have received throughout the ages to not conform to the social, religious, and political pressure that would have us conform to the beliefs and behavior patterns of the world around us, but to stand distinct from them, though, let me be clear, not distant from them. This standing out and standing aside of God's people is a theme throughout Scripture. God's people are called to be distinct and stand apart from the beliefs and behavior patterns of this world, but we are not to be distant. This is not a call to a sectarian lifestyle where we all become monks together, put fancy robes on, dedicate ourselves to silence and inward prayer, and live on a mountainside and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. We are to separate ourselves from the world, but this is an infiltration mission, not a separation to the outside mission. Isaiah and his followers were to be distinct in the midst of the people of Judah. They were to be easily, excuse me, they were to be easily identifiable by what they did not fear, what they considered holy, and what they hoped in. They were to be distinct among the people of Judah by what they did not fear, what they considered holy, and what they hoped in. As believers, we are distinct by what we do not fear. We are distinct by what we consider holy and set apart, and we are distinct by what we hope in. God knew that Isaiah and his followers were a minority, that they held an unpopular political view in the midst of this conflict, that they were unpopular concerning God's prophetic promises for the future. They would be unpopular by where they would go for hope in the dark days that were follow. Under the threat of military invasion, King Ahaz does not drive himself to his knees in the midst of God's presence. No, no, he goes to an enemy king and seeks comfort and protection from him. Isaiah and his followers would do the opposite. They were to drive themselves to God's presence. Verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. This exhortation does not deny that there are conspiracies. It just simply denies the fact that as believers in the one true God, we need not fear the conspiracies of men. Consider the political climate we live in today. What a great comfort this is that we would not call conspiracy what the people of our culture, society, and world would call conspiracy. That we need not fear what they fear. Consider foreign influenced elections, political infighting, legal and social corruption. We need not fear. We need not live in dread. The conspiracies of men may exist. Your timeline and social media might be full of the Illuminati and its theories. But heaven forbid it drive you to fear or dread. For we as believers have protection from the conspiracies of men. We have the sovereignty of God. Do not forget he is in control always and all the time. We have the sanctuary of his presence. We have the shield of his truth. And lest we forget, we have the king of kings. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, says this, 
Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Isaiah and his disciples, believers everywhere in all time, need not fear the conspiracies of men. We have the king of hosts. We have the king who sits on the throne who laughs at the conspiracies of men, laughs at those who would plot in vain against him. He is God. They are not. Amen? Amen. Verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. What are we to fear rather than the conspiracies of men? We're to fear the Lord himself. We're to honor God as holy and let him be the thing or the person that we fear. So let me break both these down. How do we honor God as holy? What does that mean? It is to set God apart as holy. This requires us to see him as the high and exalted king of Isaiah 6. You remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah enters into the throne room of God. He has this beautiful vision of God. And immediately, what is he? Down on his knees, face down, crying, woe is me, because he becomes very keenly aware of all the ways he is not God. And all the ways that God is. To honor God as holy is to recognize that he is totally different from us. He is different in his essence. He is different in his glorious presence. He is different in his magnificent power and his beautiful character. Those who treat God as holy, here's some practical things. Those who treat God as holy do not ignore his words. So as a personal soul check real quick, you might want to examine, say, okay, God, what words have I ignored lately? Is there something specific, God, that you've told me that I've ignored or left to the wayside or left undone in hopes that you might forget? like an absentee parent. I've got this theory. It is completely my own after years of pastoral experience. So chalk that up for what you want. But I have this idea that if God has told you something to do or to obey or to repent or to give up, and you've ignored that and you continue to live your life, that God will not continue on or give you another thing to do until that thing is done. And again, this is just, just a, a moment of pastoral conjecture, if you will. Test it out in your own life if, if, you, if you want. But I think that you can trace back and you say, okay, God, you told me that thing way back here, and I tried to live as if you hadn't said that, and now I'm way over here, and I wonder how that happened. And see if it's not true. But those who treat God as holy do not ignore his words, Number two, they do not dishonor his name. His name gets all of the glory, all of the credit, all of the worthiness in their life, not their own. They build his kingdom, not their own. And those who consider God as holy do not fail to trust in him when things are hard. They bow in awe. They give him due reverence. And they obey in faith what he says. 
People do not honor God as the king of the universe and holy when they do not trust his promises, but instead allow themselves to be guided by the common fears of unbelievers. When we fear the same things that unbelievers fear, we are making a statement about our, the trustworthiness we believe God has. Isaiah and his disciples were called to trust in something different than a political conspiracy to rescue themselves. Because that's where Ahaz, the king of Judah at this time, had placed all of his hope and trust. He said, you know, God can't do it. God can't save me. My only hope is the Assyrian Empire. And so I'll serve him and subjugate myself to him for safety and comfort. I will give up my freedom and essentially enslave myself and the nation around me to a foreign king so that I'll be safe rather than live in open worship to the God of the universe. King Ahaz failed to honor God as holy. Those who are going to follow God as holy and honor him must do things differently than others within the culture around them. Let's talk about what it means to fear the Lord. To live with the fear and dread of the Lord is to live with a wholehearted, whole-minded, whole-life acknowledgement of the Godhood of God. It is within the context of your heart and your mind and your whole life to acknowledge that he is God and that you are not. It is to acknowledge his sovereignty and control, his power, his knowledge, his beauty, his grace, and his mercy. It is to recognize that more than anyone or anything else, God is God over you and has the power as God to do what he as God pleases. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice that this instruction to Isaiah is given in the real context of danger. For most of us, we're sitting comfortably here in Southern California, 85 in March. Amen? But for Isaiah and his disciples, they were in immediate danger of losing their lives. They were in an immediate context in which a foreign army had aligned with their brothers from Israel and were preparing to invade, destroy, pillage, rape, kill, take captive, all of that. The people of Judah were facing a coming military invasion. This might cost them their life to entrust God with their soul. But that's what living with the fear of the Lord means. It means I recognize that God is God over me. That I stand in awe and appreciation, and I never forget that fact. When I've talked about this idea before, I remember our, when our family visited the Grand Canyon on a trip, and I remember coming close to the edge and feeling so small and so insignificant in the moment. It was just at the moment where the sun was setting, and so all of the ridges along the canyon were, were kind of coming together, almost like puzzle pieces. But I remember I just been, being very keenly aware of where the edge was the whole time and, and walking cautiously along that, giving it due respect and attention. And in a small way, that reminds me what it means to live with the fear of the Lord. 
It means with each step we take, we are giving God due respect and attention. Recognizing that we live dependent upon his grace and mercy. Now fear, again, is not a motivator for us. It's a manner in which we live our life. Our obedience to God is motivated out of our love for him, having received the love that he's testified to through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, to tie it into the parent-child relationship, you, you want that element of fear and respect or fear and love from your child. You, you want them to walk with a respect and an admiration of you, but you want them motivated out of love to obey you. That's what our Father wants from us. Considering God is holy and walking in the fear of the Lord is a double-sided coin. They are fit together. And that's the call that Isaiah and his disciples are to walk with. That's how they're going to live distinct but not distant from the people of Judah. Let's get into verse 14. And he, God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken For Isaiah and his followers, when they fear God and honor him as holy, what does he promise to be to them? Look in the text, verse 14. Come on, pay attention, stay with me, it's only 1040. A sanctuary. What does he say? Isaiah and your father, if you will walk with holy fear before me, I will be to you a sanctuary. What is that? A safe place in the midst of this physical military conflict, I, your God, will protect you, will come alongside you, will be safe for you, will keep you at peace, will keep you safe. I will be your sanctuary, cries the Lord of hosts to Isaiah and his followers, if they will walk in holy, reverent fear of him. He will be a sanctuary, a place of solid strength and refuge. He will be the place to go when they fear other things. He will be a blessing and a comfort for them when they are struggling with all the political changes going on around them. But for those who reject God, the role is reversed. The rock will not be a cleft and a hiding place for them. No, no. The rock will not be a refuge but it will crush them. It will be destroyed instead of being delivered from the snares of political conspiracy and war. God warns that many will fall into these traps by unbelief because of their ungodly worldview. This is a strong warning to Isaiah and his followers about the serious consequences of failing to treat God as holy and live with fear. Which begs the question this morning, Is Jesus the sanctuary or the snare for your soul? Is he the rock of your salvation today? Is he the place where you go for comfort and peace and hope when the world around you feels like it's crumbling away? Or will he one day be the snare of your judgment? The question is, not will you experience God? The question is is not, do I believe in God? Do I don't believe in God? Will one day I see God? Will one day I not see God? No, no, no. 
the Bible's clear. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Every single person in this room is going to experience God. The question that becomes, as for Isaiah and the people of Judah, how will you experience God today? Will you experience him as a sanctuary for your soul, or will you experience him as the snare of your judgment? Will your knee bow and your tongue confess and your eye see in beautiful worship for eternity? Or will your knee bow, tongue confess, and eye see God in his infinite beautiful justice and suffer judgment? You will experience God this morning. We invite you this morning to experience him as a sanctuary. Verse 16, God's instructions to Isaiah, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. This text refers to Isaiah's ministry. He was going to seal God's words in the hearts of his followers. Again, this isn't a call to to seal it up and to bind it up and to hide it. No, no, it's to root it so deeply in their heart that it would be sealed with them that it would be bound up in their hearts, that they would walk in this instruction from God all of their life. This was Isaiah's job, to deliver God's truth to God's people with God's authority. Verse 17, Isaiah's response to God's instructions, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will, what's that word? Hope in him. Now this is an interesting word, hope, here in the Old Testament. We've got to do some work with it, because when you hear me say hope, in the English language, you don't hear biblical hope. When you hear the word hope in the English language, here's what you hear. The worldly definition of hope, which is wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I'm going to buy a lottery ticket and I hope I win. I hope I have a good day at work. This is just simply wishful thinking. We have very low expectations that, and very low uh, an idea of what is going to happen or very low confidence that what we wish would happen is going to happen. That's worldly hope in humanity. But that, my friends, is not biblical hope and that's not what Isaiah is experiencing here. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of good. Biblical hope is that I can stand confidently expecting that what God says is going to happen is going to happen, and it is going to be good. This is the definition of biblical hope. It is a confident expectation of good. So what is Isaiah saying here? In the midst of political intrigue and conspiracy, I have confident expectation that God is going to do good on my behalf. This is what it means to live with true hope as a Christian. It's not wishful thinking. Like, God, maybe, kind of, sort of, you'll do something. No, it is live with a confident expectation. The night my father passed, this came to my mind again. I made a list. I said, God, I believe in you, and I just have a, I have a confident expectation that my father's suffering is over. God, I have a confident expectation that he is with you rejoicing. That, Father, I have a confident expectation that I will see him again. That is the conviction of biblical hope that Judah, Isaiah lives with, calls the people of Judah to live with, and that by the presence of the Spirit has carried me through each day. And that I invite you to experience through faith in Jesus Christ this morning. Because otherwise you're stuck with worldly hope. And you might as well buy a lottery ticket. Jonathan Edwards describing the one who lives with this kind of hope this way when he says, He has more holy boldness, so he has less self-confidence. 
He is less apt than others to be shaken in faith, but more apt than others to be moved by solemn warnings, God's frowns, and the calamities of others. He has the firmest comfort, but the softest heart. He is richer than others, but poorest of all in the spirit. He is the tallest and strongest saint, but the least and tenderest child among them. May God grant Generations Church men and women who live this way, who hope with this kind of hope, because you know what? This kind of hope is attractive to the world because they don't have it. When we live distinct this way, our lives become attractive to unbelievers because they want what we have. And then you know what? When someone wants what you have, it becomes very easy to share your faith with them. We, we, we can forget the formulas. We can forget the awkwardness. When we live in such a manner that unbelievers are asking, what makes you that way? Sharing the testimony of Jesus becomes very easy. Verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Again, Isaiah here is describing himself and the disciples or his spiritual children as a sign of God's mercy and grace in the midst of people who are about to suffer a tremendous military conflict in their midst. And again, if I were to superimpose this upon us today, I would say that we are a sign, a remnant of God's people for the people of Cerritos to look and see that God is in their midst. As Isaiah and his followers didn't lose their minds with the coming Syrian and Israel attack, they would be distinct among the people. Not distant from them, right in the middle of their midst. And the people would see the way of safety and salvation among them. That's who Israel and his disciples were for Judah. That's who we are called to be here in the midst of the city of Cerritos. A sign and a remnant that God is in their midst. Verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Again, King Ahaz was going to seek political uh, conspiracy and power in order to save himself. The people were only left to the infiltration of idols that had come into Judah at this time. And so when the military conflict begins to impress upon them, they turn to the only place they can, the false religions that King Ahaz has let infect their souls. And so here's what they would do. They would inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. These are people who would speak to the dead. Here's an interesting thing. For me... And if you, if you know someone in your life, if you're a family member who, who kind of lives in this manner where they're, they're kind of they're, they're spiritual but not Christian, you know, they believe in the spirit and the soul and kind of ghosts and all that kind of stuff, does it make much sense to go to the dead to find out about the living? I mean, because here's the belief that you have to live with. If you believe in necromancer and mediums who can interact with the dead to find out information about your future, here's what you believe. You must believe that when a person dies, they suddenly become a divine being with supernatural knowledge about the future. And I don't, we don't see that, I mean, anywhere across the major religion, anywhere. And yet that's what the people of Judah are left to. And that's so Isaiah uses these words of chirp and mutter, Right? Imagine that, like the sound of, of animals in early springtime, right? Just inconsequential, just noise. Verse 20, what does Isaiah say to what? Verse 20, read it out loud with me. 
to the teaching and to the testimony. Where is Isaiah pointing the people back to? Toward what? Toward the faithful word of God. Where will they find their hope? Where will they find that thing that they must trust in? Back to the teaching and to the testimony. Back to the word of the God. What makes them distinct? What they fear, what they consider holy, and finally what they trust in. To the word of God, that would be their sanctuary. That would be the place they would point to and say, God, you have been faithful through all of these military conflicts throughout history. God, we believe, we have confident expectation of good. We have hope that you will be faithful in the midst of this one too. Why? Because we have a teaching and a testimony that testifies to who you are and what you've done. That becomes our place of hope. That becomes our place where we seek refuge. That becomes our place where we want to be in the midst of the presence of God, to the word, to the teaching, to the testimony. Verse 20 continues, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What a beautiful illustration for those who recognize that the word contains the testimony of God. It's like the new dawn in your soul. The sun rises up and brings light and warmth and recreation. For those who do not turn and live with God this way, they are darkened. Verse 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. God contrasts the illumination of his revelation to his people with the darkness that the rejection of God brings. If the people will not treat God as holy and fear him, then they will end up fearing man and his power. For those who reject God and his word, there is no source of light, there is no dawn, there is no life. Without God, it leads to destruction, painful distress, and darkness. Historically, we know that the nation of Judah refused to accept God's promise to deliver them from Syria and Israel. They rejected God and rejoiced in their own political alliance to eliminate the threat of Syria and Israel, and yet judgment came ever the same. And yet here, you sitting here this morning, God has granted to you an opportunity to receive rather than reject his illumination. If you desire to see God as a sanctuary this morning, there are two things you must believe in, one thing you must do. The first thing you must believe in is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus endured the cross, he endured the sins that you have committed on your behalf and in your place. And then having died, he did not stay that way, but three days later rose again. Having believed this first thing, the second thing you must believe is that you cannot save yourself. It is an all an act of mercy and grace upon God. And if you're ready to believe in this teaching and testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your inability to save yourself, the final thing you must do, you must cast yourself upon him. You must turn aside as Isaiah and his followers were called to and walk in the new way of following Jesus, living with holy fear, and seeing God as holy above all other things and following Jesus as a daily disciple. I'm going to pray for us, church. If you're ready to do those two things, if you're ready to believe those two things and do that one thing, I'm going to pray for you right now. We're going to move into time of worship. We're going to receive the offering. 
We're going to sing songs and we're going to celebrate with communion. We invite you to become a Christian today if you're ready to believe these two things and do this one thing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Isaiah and the people of Judah. Thank you, God, that you have preserved them. That you kept your promise, God. That you keep your promises to us. That we might live, God, because you are a promise keeper with a confident expectation of good. I pray, Father, that you would help us for the places where we have forgotten your holiness, where we have given in to the fear of the conspiracies of men, where we have exchanged our allegiance and worship for security and comfort. You would grant us, Father, this morning just a sense of peace in your presence. God, for those in this room who for the first time might believe in Jesus, I ask that you would compassionately move their hearts and draw them to yourself. And that they would experience a lightness, God, that comes with worshiping you like they have never known before as you lift the burdens of this life from them. We love you, Father. Once again, we ask that you would receive all of the glory from today. We keep none of it for ourselves. It is all your work. We praise you. In the magnificent and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.